come on a journey with a cinephile. to episode number 33 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, your tour guide, David Garrett Jr. here. And on this episode, it's going to be Journey Through the Aughts number 8, as I have from 1940, the movie You'll Find Out. And for the 2020 release, I actually had a person who I've watched a lot of their short films to help, you know, kind of get them a little bit more exposure and everything. But to be honest, they're doing a great job even without my help. And that movie that... They finally did their first feature film, which is We Are the Missing, and I will have that information about that. But on top of that, we also have mini reviews of Hollow Man, The Others, Pulse, and Jaws. Now, what I'm going to go ahead and do, though, before I get into any of those mini reviews, I'm going to get you over to a musical break. I hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me. And we're ready. Gentlemen, be seated. That's what I said. A one, a two. Tingling, tingling, tingling. It's the bad humor man. Hey, little kitties, do you hear that noise? Better fly, better fly, better fly. Here comes the enemy of girls and boys. Oh, what a guy, what a guy, what a guy. Hear him yell, hear his bell. So drop your philosophies and drop your toys. And run, Elmer. Tingling, tingling, tingling. It's the bad humor man. Tingling, tingling, tingling. With a frown on his pen. He's a gloomy Gus and the grouch on wheels. He's one of America's foremost heels. So he sings tingling, tingling as he goes on his way. With his wagon rumbling, he keeps grumbling. His show is an awful day. Oh boy, school is out, school is out. London Bridge is falling down. Day by night, see how they ran. London Bridge is falling down. Oh, and a plane too. Oh, McDonald had a fire. Throw me that ball, Rusty. Hey, look. With pleasure, kitty. Oh, up every morning at the break of day. What a life, what a life, what a life. Cold cup of coffee on the breakfast tray. What a wife, what a wife, what a wife. Oh, be warm, beans go warm. And so as I wander on my weary way, I sing this song. Tingling. 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 I'm the bad humor man. <laughs> 
frown on my pants. He's mean as some and I'm mean with greed. Yes, I hate people and they hate me. So he sings tingling, tingling. As he goes on his way. With my wagon rumbling, I keep a grumbling. Wow, what a wowsy day. That's no way to act. Now why be mad? Well, fitness is good, but my humor's bad. Then come on, kids, with your musical toys. They'll make you one of the happiness boys. for this week i have hollow man from 2000 this was directed by paul verhoven this comes from a story idea from gary scott thompson and andrew w marlowe and andrew also wrote the screenplay for this movie this stars kevin bacon elizabeth shue and josh brolin this is a action horror sci-fi thriller from the united states and germany this is currently sitting on a 5.8 on IMDb and a 2.6 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being, when the leader of a team of scientists volunteers to be the test subject for their experiment in human invisibility, he slowly unravels and turns against them with horrific consequences. Now, this was a movie that I actually saw this in theaters when it came out, as my mother took my sister and I when it hit the theater and i know both of us liked it and i believe my mother did as well now this is one that i would usually check out when it was showing on the movie channels and i even obtained a copy of it while i was in college and it probably been since i got that dvd that i had seen this though so it had been quite a while now this is a movie that jamie was interested in seeing when i went through the list of movies that are part of the podcast under the stairs summer challenge series for the 2000s but she was also intrigued because she knew that this was a different take on the invisible man and she really liked the one from this year here in 2020 so we decided to go see this together but this has an interesting dynamic here we have sebastian kane who is kevin bacon and he is a scientist who's leading the team but he's kind of an arrogant asshole which is an interesting look here because the original invisible man is actually a pretty good guy that goes mad because while you're invisible there's the dynamic of the power that you have through that is corrupting but here we see that they are playing with this a little bit as there's a moment in the very beginning where a rat is eaten by an invisible gorilla and gorillas are supposed to be herbivores so it eating this is showing that there is that decaying of I mean, for humans, it's a decaying of humanity, but for them, it's just that as you, it's slowly driving you insane because of being invisible, but also that it's just wearing on your psyche as well. And so what's interesting here, though, is that Sebastian Kane is the one that goes invisible, but he's already kind of a dick. So all you're really doing is just playing up the fact that he 
loses what shred of humanity he did have, and I don't necessarily know if it works as well story-wise as you get in the original Invisible Man for me. Now, this movie is technically not based on that original H.G. Wells novel like the original Invisible Man was. It slowly is, but I did find it interesting that the rights to a novel called Hollow Man were purchased, so that way they could use the title here, but they used nothing from that book. And I do have to say, this movie is extremely misogynistic, but the take makes sense with the idea they're playing with. Because, I mean, Sebastian literally sexually assaults so many different women in this movie in different ways, but it really becomes the question of what would you do if you didn't have to face yourself and no longer have to worry about the consequences of your actions? And that is a terrifying thing when you get somebody like Sebastian to give that type of power. But I do think this movie has a better first half and then goes over the top for the second half of the movie. And I think part of that becomes that this serum isn't supposed to give you like invincibility or invulnerability or superhuman strength or anything like that. But that is definitely kind of the powers that we see with Kevin Bacon's character. And I think that it makes it a little bit unbelievable and kind of loses its way for the good faith they start in the first half. Because I think the building up of the characters is really good. Something else that is really good, though, is the effects are pretty much flawless in my eyes, if I'm going to be perfectly honest. It's crazy how well they did and how well they still hold up after all of these years. I mean, this movie's 20 years old now, and there was very little that I could see with them in this movie that really made me think that I was just shocked, to be honest. Because I know, especially early on, is that in this decade and at the end of the 90s some of the cgi doesn't look great but i was really impressed with what they did here as they really put a lot of time and effort into it and it really does show that cgi can look good it's just you have to put that effort in and i do think they did a lot of things with practical effects that they could and that computers were really just used to kind of enhance different things so that makes probably a lot of sense there as well i still think this is a pretty solid movie i don't think it's great by any stretch as it has a really good first half and then there's really a problematic second half but i still like i said think this is a solid movie that i came with a seven out of ten on and for the second movie that i watched for this week is going to be the others from 2001 this is written and directed by Alejandro Amanadar. This stars Nicole Kidman, Christopher Electuston, and Fignola Flanagan. This is a horror mystery thriller of a co-production from Spain, the United States, France, and Italy. This is currently sitting on a 7.6 on IMDb and a 3.7 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being a woman who lives in a darkened old family house with two photosensitive children becomes convinced that the house is haunted. Now this is a movie that I remember catching most of it back around the time that it hit the movie channels. But to be honest, until this watch, I don't think I've ever seen this all the way through. I did know the twist, at least some of it. I was excited to finally give this a viewing as this is the first movie from the years that I was assigned as part of the People's Council for the podcast Under the Stairs Summer Challenge series for the 2000s. Now Jamie and I ended up watching this together as well because she was pretty interested in giving this another viewing as she remembers seeing this. But as I said, I don't necessarily know if I had ever given this a full watch. Now, this is an interesting layered and take on the ghost story. Now, going off of what was, you know, from the synopsis is that we have Grace, who is Nicole Kidman, and she lives in a old house with her two children, who are, Anne is the older one, who is Alakina Mann, and then her son is Nicholas, who is James Bentley. 
Now, this is right after World War II, and we're on, I think, an island called Jersey, just off the United Kingdom shore. And her husband has went off into World War II and has not come home yet, to the point where Anne is convinced that he will, where Nicholas doesn't think that he's ever going to come back to them. But it is revealed in this movie that the power kept getting cut by the Nazis, so they're using oil lamps. And I think this is an interesting thing with how old the house looks and using these different little oil lamps that it gives it this timeless feel. And as things kind of get revealed and you learn more about it, it definitely helps in that feeling as well, in my opinion. But as I was saying, there's that timeless feel that I thought really works. And then we also have some really strong acting, especially from Nicole Kidman, as she's a God-fearing woman. And she's very also hard-headed where things are being introduced to her that this could be supernatural. And she doesn't believe it because it doesn't mesh with what her belief systems are. And it really takes her to start seeing some things happen that make her change her mind. But then going along with this, I also believe that Fignolna Flanagan, who is Mrs. Mills, is also very good as she knows more than what she's letting on. But she won't reveal this, though, because she needs to have these people to come to the conclusion themselves as she just can't reveal it, which I thought was a kind of an interesting way to not only prolong the movie, but also it's kind of one of those things where the people have to come to terms with the reveal of everything in order to kind of have everything be revealed that way and the last character i really wanted to talk about is Anne, who is alakina man i think for her age she does a great job especially because there's quite a few scenes where she's butting heads with her mother as they have somewhat of different belief system on things and i thought that was really well done you know being somebody so young as she is at the time of being in this movie with having an actress like nicole kidman to play opposite with you and nicole doesn't really necessarily take the whole screen away from her which is pretty impressive as well i've kind of already touched about this i think we have a great setting here of this pretty large mansion house that has fallen a little bit into disrepair just with age and everything and it just gives us such a creepy vibe with how many rooms there are and the rules that grace has set forward where in order to go into the next room you have to make sure the door that you came through before is closed and locked and a lot of this is because she believes her children are still are photosensitive and that they need to you know not be exposed to direct sunlight because it will hurt them very badly and i like how they're playing with this so that's why it's always being bathed in darkness even when we're in the daylight hours of the movie and then the soundtrack is there to really help to carry a creepy vibe as an undertone as well now for being a ghost story like we get here it's some very minimal effects and it does have that one legendary jump scare which i believe was in the trailer and it's one that really has stuck with me but it's even better knowing the context around it and everything that leads up to it because it just makes it as i'm saying that much better and that much more creepier now that i know some of the little things that are kind of surrounding it as well and this is one of those movies that if you pay attention it really explains everything as to why these characters are kind of stuck here and I think that was kind of a really interesting story to play with that we get in this movie. Now, I actually think this is one of the best ghost stories that are out there. I really enjoyed, you know, giving this a full watch finally. And I end up coming in with a 9 out of 10 on this movie. And up next, I have Pulse from 2001. This is the original one that is written and directed by Kayoshi Kurosawa. It stars Hirihiko Kato. Kumiko Aso and Koyuki. This is a horror mystery sci-fi thriller from Japan. This is currently sitting on a 6.5 on IMDb and a 3.5 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being two groups of people discover evidence that suggests spirits may be trying to invade the human world through the internet. Now, 
This was a movie that I sought out after I saw the American remake. I did rather enjoy that one, much like with The Ring and The Grudge. So I decided that I would see you know, where it started, as I did with uh, both of those films as well. And it was in college at the last time that I actually gave this a viewing, so probably over five years after its release, and I hadn't seen it since. And I did get the opportunity since it is in the year that I was assigned by Duncan over on the podcast Under the Stairs for the Summer Challenge series for the 2000s with, you know, 2001. Now, just to give a little bit more background information with this movie, is that the one group is following Michi, and she is with a group of people of Junko... Sasano and Toshio Yabi and they're worried about their friend Taguchi who was supposed to be working on a group project together and he was doing something on a disc on the computer but they haven't been able to get in touch with him and finally Michi goes over there to his house and ends up finding out that he is there he did complete the work but then end up killing himself but then on the disc they end up finding a creepy image with one of the monitors is reflecting a face that is quite creepy and then the other group is Ryosuke Kawashima as he tries to get on the internet for the first time and gets to a creepy website and he ends up seeking out the help of Haru Kurosawa who is there to help him you know kind of figure things out with the internet as he is new to it now this is one that I have to give props to the Japanese for taking the traditional ghost story and then incorporating technology with it as this is one you know where they're doing it with the internet which I think is a great idea as it's really something that we have a vague understanding of how it works, but there's really a lot of room where something creepy like this could possibly happen as technology keeps getting greater and greater. And it is almost amazing to think that this movie is coming up on 20 years old next year, and it's predicting the world that we live in now where people are living their lives over the internet, and we really don't necessarily know each other as much as we like to think we do. And I mean, just myself is that I found this great horror community out there where nobody really knows who I am outside of the things that I share on there. And it also is making it where people are going out less and less. And I mean, it doesn't even, it's also kind of crazy as well to think that we're living in this pandemic where we're not allowed to really go out as much as we used to be able to. And, you know, I'm sure that there's a lot more depression that is kind of building with you know, lives being changed and everything like that. It's just crazy that this movie is coming up on this year, this old. And, you know, that social commentary there of how the internet is dehumanizing us and we're not necessarily living our lives, as I was saying. But this movie does have a really good aesthetic to it as the it has a drab look that goes great along with most of the effects. There's a little bit of CGI that doesn't necessarily work, but there's almost a monochromatic tone to the movie. And I think a lot of that really is kind of building up on the depression that the characters kind of sink into as the ghosts start to kind of mess with them, which I think is really kind of interesting thing to work with there. The soundtrack also helps in building that tension where there's a few times where I could feel my anxiety just getting really ramped up with everything that we're seeing on the screen and everything like that. So I do have to give credit to there. If I do have any sort of drawback for the movie, I do think that it runs a little bit long as we get a lot of stuff, and you're dealing with two different groups of people as well, but the problem that I have is I think there's a little bit too much filler that is there to kind of push the story along, where we get some things that I feel like get a little bit repetitive, and we don't necessarily dive too much into kind of what is causing this haunting or anything like that. So I do feel if they were going to kind of do some of these things, they probably should have fleshed out some of that a little bit more and kind of cut some of the things that we did get. But none of the things that I'm saying here that I didn't like were anything to ruin the movie. It's, I thought this was really good. 
and I'm really glad that I got to see this one again as it's been on my list of films to recheck out, especially because last year for the Summer Challenge series for the 90s, I got to watch the writer-director Kurosawa's other film of Cure, and I really like that one, and it's one that I want to revisit for that as well. But I really did, for as depressing as this movie is, I really did enjoy this one, and I came in with a 9 out of 10 on this movie as well. And then last up is with the theaters being closed currently, Jamie and I decided to go see a double feature at the local drive-in as they were showing Jaws and Jurassic Park. Now, they showed Jaws first, which I did watch that one all the way through, and Jurassic Park was after that, and it was just getting too late, and I was exhausted. So I did, we only got to see halfway through that, so I'm not going to count that as a full watch because of that. But the last movie I'm going to cover here I just wanted to get set the stage for is going to be Jaws from 1975. This is directed by Steven Spielberg. This is from a screenplay that was co-written between Peter Benchley and Carl Gottlieb, and then Peter Benchley also wrote the novel that this is based from. And this story stars Roy Schneider, Robert Shaw, and Richard Dreyfuss. This is a adventure thriller, technically, but I feel this is a eco-creature feature as well. And this is from the United States. It's currently sitting on an 8.0 on IMDb and a 4.1 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being, When a killer shark unleashes chaos on a beach community, it's up to a local sheriff, a marine biologist, and an old seafarer to hunt the beast down. Now, just a little bit of background from me here. Is this a film that I wasn't sure if I ever watched all the way through or not? But I know I had seen multiple times just different pieces of it, and I've seen it, you know, for different stretches. And it's definitely a blockbuster film and one that really changed the landscape of cinema. And I can say now that I've seen it all the way through twice in the theater on 35mm both of those times, thanks to the Gateway Film Center. Plus, there was another viewing, as I said here, this week at the drive-in theater that we have near us called South End Drive-In. And like I said, I got to see it there for the first time as well. And just to kind of go a little bit more into this is that we have the Island of Amity where we have Chief Martin Brody, who is Schneider. And then he ends up teaming up with Matt Hooper, who is Richard Dreyfus, and Quint, who is Robert Shaw. And I have to say, I'm not going to delve too much into this because I assume most people have seen this, you know, multiple times, really know everything about it. But for me, I love the character of Quint in this movie. He's just such a flawed and has such a dark past that it works so well in this movie for me. And I really like, I used to hate it actually, the scenes on the boat before, like, you know, they get to the final showdown because I feel that those kind of drug. But the more that I watch this, the more that I actually realize that he is such a dark and tormented character about what happened to him during World War II when the ship that he was on went down and he's trying to survive in the water with sharks, which it really, he goes from just being such a jerk to being such a tragic character because you can see why he is having these issues with sharks and wanting to kind of have this personal vendetta that won't be stopped. I think Spielberg does a great job with the effects, even though I know it's part of contention with him is that the shark kept breaking down. But I think, you know, less is more here and it really works out. And this is also a fitting movie to watch during, you know, this whole COVID quarantine pandemic thing, because we definitely have this city that is a summer town that needs to have... Most of their money is made during these summer months and needing to close the beaches down because of the shark. And we're really seeing that with opening the economy back up. And it's definitely an interesting parallel where I see some of our leadership in the country going along with Vaughn, who is the mayor of this town, and putting people's lives in peril. 
And then we end up seeing that Brody is the one that gets blamed for a lot of things because he is the chief of police and they're trying to say he's not doing enough. But we know behind the scenes his hands are being tied. I also like the character of Matt Hooper, who is obviously Dreyfus here, as he's such a character that knows what he's talking about, but most people don't really listen to him. And then him and Quint butt heads because Hooper comes from money and he doesn't feel that he's worked hard enough to get where he is. At least Quint thinks that. But we end up seeing that over the bonding session that Hooper really does show to Quint that he's a much better ally than what he is given credit for. And it's really just, you know, seeing that they have similar battle scars and wounds like that that they can use there. And then it's also interesting that Brody being a former detective from New York City that he had some rough go there and he was hoping to come to this island to have it much easier. But we see that that's not necessarily the case with this whole situation here. That's all I really kind of wanted to go over for this movie here. I should also give a shout out before I end this to the main theme because that is just wonderful and building tension and suspense that John Williams did. You know, props to that song there. But I don't love this as much as other people do. I recognize its greatness and everything like that. But I still have to come in with a 10 out of 10 for this movie, even though I have my issues for it. But my issues are overshadowed with how good the movie is and also because of it being a, you know, summer blockbuster. So historical significance is also playing into there but like i said i come in with a 10 out of 10 with this movie and what i'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to a the trailer for my first featured review will you please turn off that radio why lady that's kay kaiser students tommy mason jenny sims harry babbitt ishka bibble and all the gang terrible going on in this house. Somebody's trying to murder Janice Bellacrest. Murder? And welcome back. In 
for the first featured review is going to be for You'll Find Out from 1940. This is directed by David Butler. This is from a screenplay from James V. Kern and the story from him as well as David Butler. And then there's also some special material from Monty Bryce, Andrew Benison, and RTM Scott. This stars Kay Kaiser, Peter Lorre, and Boris Karloff. This is a comedy horror musical mystery romance film from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.3 on IMDb and a 2.9 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being, the manager of Kay Kaiser's band books them for a birthday party bash for a heiress at a spooky mansion where sinister forces try to kill her. Now, this was a film that I had never heard about until I was working my way through a list of 1940s horror films, and it appeared on there, as of course for this part of the journey through the aughts section that I'm doing here on this show. Now, I thought I could stream this, but found that the version was in Spanish. I then realized that I could get it on DVD from Netflix because I am still one of those few people that do that. And it was a little interesting, especially when I figured out that Lori Karloff and Lugosi all starred in this movie. And we start this off at a live studio for the radio program of Kay Kaiser and his College of Musical Knowledge. And we have a man and a woman who are competing on this type of game show here. And it was an interesting way to introduce Kay. And I'll admit that coming into this, I had no idea who he was. But I come to realize that he's the conductor of this band. But he could also sing, dance, and did a little bit of comedy as well. And it actually kind of appears that in real life, he did have a very popular radio show with that same name that he is using in this movie. So I thought that was a kind of a cool thing to do to incorporate there. But then going from there is, this is really just seems to be a film that is showcasing him along with his band. And I'll get into that a little bit later as well. Now Kay's manager in this movie is Chuck Deems, who is Dennis O'Keefe. And he's there entertaining Janice Bellacrest, who is Helen Parrish. The two of them met when she was in finishing school, and now that she's graduated, his feelings for her have too. Since the following day is her 21st birthday, Chuck booked Kay and his band to play at her large estate. Before leaving, Chuck introduces Kay to Janice, and they kind of have a funny scene where he starts to undress and doesn't realize she's in there. But the two of them leave Kay to, you know, change his clothes. But then outside, somebody tries to kill her, and this shocks Chuck as she relays that this isn't the first time, and that is why she is carrying a gun, as he does notice that a little bit earlier in the dressing room when she puts her purse down and it gets revealed through the mirror, which I thought was a kind of cool kind of shot to use there. Now, he tries to calm her nerves, but that, you know, this isn't really somebody coming after her, that these are just coincidences. But it is kind of weird, though, to have two attempts on your life in a short period of time, as I don't know about you, but I don't ever remember having an attempt on my life. But, you know, it is what it is. It's a different time, I guess, in 1940. Maybe that was something a little bit more common. Then the following day, Chuck, Kay, and his whole gang, which includes Ginny Sims, Harry Babbitt-ish, Kabibble, who is portrayed by M.A. Bogu and Sully Mason, who they're all playing themselves pretty much, all besides Ish, and they arrive, arrive at this large mansion. Now, Janice's father was a collector of unusual artifacts, some of which were dangerous, and we end up learning that he spent a lot of time in places like Africa and just places that were a little bit more primitive, where he would big game hunt and things of this nature. And then he collected a lot of stuff and brought it back to his mansion. And there's actually kind of a funny scene where 
they talk about how some natives were coming after him for trying to take things and he and the joke is about him you know just wanting to preserve it in his museum like house but then you also have to kind of think of that he is literally stealing these things from the indigenous people now janice lives with her aunt Margot, who is alma kruger and she is in charge of all of the money in the estate at this time due to her brother passing away some time ago and she is stuck or she has sunk a bit into believing in the supernatural and is just an odd bird in general. But then also there in the mansion to celebrate is the family friend of Judge Spencer Mame Waring, who is Karloff. And he was also a friend of Janice's father, and he was supposedly there at the time that he passed away as well. And then also there is a spiritual guide who Aunt Margot is fond of in Prince Solanio, who is Lugosi. Now, some of Janice's friends show up, but then an odd thing happens. A storm rolls in, and the bridge blows up. Judge Maywaring believes it was a lightning striking it, and that's what caused it, as he said that he saw it happen. But I don't know about you, but I've never seen a bridge, because we actually get to see it explode as they do it with models, is I've never seen something explode like it does due to lightning. But, you know, again, it's 1940s. Guess I'll just move on. But then something else of note is that Janice isn't fond of Prince Salino. Now, she believes he is taking advantage of her aunt. So Professor Carl Feniger, who is Lori, is called in to prove that Prince Solanio is a fraud. He at first spooks the young ladies as he is seen through a window, but then everyone settles in. Some music is played, and to culminate in the night, Prince Solanio does a seance. Things seem pretty real, but not everything in this house is as it seems. And there are a couple more attempts on the life of Janice as the night goes on, and everyone isn't as they seem either. Can Kay and the crew get to the bottom of what is going on before it is too late? And it's kind of an interesting title is You'll Find Out. Now with that bad joke out of the way, that's where I want to leave my recap as I don't want to spoil what the reveal is in this movie, but I will say that I was a little bit let down by it. My issue with it is that the movie doesn't hold the mystery long enough to really keep me intrigued for that. We get a scene where a blow dart is used to try to kill Janice, and then I was trying to guess who did it, and then not even 10 minutes later it gets revealed. I shouldn't harp too much, as this is early cinema, so they really just wanted to make an entertaining movie, and I will give it that. It is fun, as this is what I would consider a popcorn movie, but I really wanted more from the story. Going from there, it really seems like RKO wanted to showcase the popular Kay Kaiser and his band by putting them in this movie. I can say that he's tailing it all around. He can sing, dance, and do some comedy, so I'm impressed there. The same can be said for Ginny Sims, Harry Babbitt, M.A. Bogu, and Sully Mason. The problem is that I didn't really want to see them showcase for their acts and their musical numbers, as we get a lot of that in the movie, and it just kind of feel, feels like filler to me. I'm sure there were fans back in the day, and that's what they were probably trying to do is draw them in there as like a cash grab. But this just isn't for me. And that's not to say that the acting for the movie isn't good. I think everybody that I just named above is fine in portraying themselves as they're all kind of a little bit quirky. But we also have some legendary actors in this movie. Laurie is just so creepy and just looks like he's up to something no matter what he's doing. Karloff, on the other hand, comes off as stoic and just always in charge no matter what. He really just seems and kind of just takes over the scene when he's in it. And I do know that's kind of what butted heads with him and Lugosi a lot of times is that Karloff ended up getting a lot of top billing. And I did also read that, well, I should probably say Lugosi comes off similar to, as Laurie to me as well. And then Parrish, O'Keefe, Kruger, and the rest do round this out for what is needed in my opinion but this is the seventh of eight features to star Karloff and Lugosi and this is the only time that fellow Hungarians Lugosi and Lori ever shared the screen so I thought that was kind of cool that 
all the times that those two guys work together that this is the second to last one and then this is the only time that Lori and Lugosi ever got to work together on screen so you know props to RKO for making that happen um, and then going from there, taking next to the effects, I thought the ones that they used were fine. We get a cool scene where there's something white floating in the dark in the room of Kay and Chuck at night. I thought the reveal was funny and that worked for me. The setting of this mansion along with the props in it really helps as well. There were a couple of things from the King, the original King Kong movie that RKO did. And that was another piece of trivia that I also found is that... In the secret chambers that we get to see later on are the Willis O'Brien models of the Triceratops, a spider from the famous deleted crevice scene, as well as some other creatures and native island props. Now that they mentioned it and I went back and looked at it, I can definitely see that. So that's also kind of pretty cool that they got to use those things because it probably was just sitting around and they're like, hey, why not? I'm also a sucker for the secret passages and what the truth of things that we see with the seance in the movie. I thought they looked cool and then seeing kind of how they were done were kind of a fun thing for me and I would say that the cinematography for this movie is fine in that regards as well and then just before I kind of close everything up here the other pieces of trivia are that this is the debut of Jeff Corey and Jimmy McHugh and Johnny Mercer supplied another song of don't think this ain't been charming but it didn't make the final cut and I mean I do hate to say this but I'm kind of glad that it didn't because the things that we did get to see I the musical numbers really just kind of they were fine, and I mean, these people do have excellent singing voices and whatnot. I just don't really care for it, and I really wanted more of the mystery to build up instead of what we got. But that's really what I wanted to go over for this movie. I can't blame RKO for this cash grab, especially when you get the built-in audience from Kay Kaiser and his band, along with the heavyweight actors of Lori, Karloff, and Lugosi. I would say that the acting is good, the story is lacking a bit, the musical numbers really aren't my cup of tea as I've said, but they're really fun. The movie never really got boring so there is that. I would just say this movie is lacking to make it really good, but was still enjoyable to check out. My rating for this would be just over average in my opinion, getting close that if they would have tweaked a few things it would have been above average, especially with the story, and I think that would have been a bit more interesting. but. Outside of that, though, I really can't go any higher than a 6.5 out of 10 at this time. Now, that's all I really wanted to go over for this movie. As I said, the story's not really deep enough to really go any farther than what I have, outside of just kind of doing a walkthrough, and I don't really want to do that here for this one. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to the trailer for my second featured review. Someone's mother, father, sister, brother... Someone's cousin they haven't seen since last Christmas. That lady with the freckles who serves you coffee every morning. Everyone's smiling, yet something is hiding in plain sight. Sometimes it hides behind a smile, an infectious laugh, or an act of kindness. But past those grinning teeth, you'll never know what's going through someone's head. What thoughts creep through their mind at night. Depression wears many faces. Riley's was one of them. You never think it's going to happen to you. That only happens to other people or a friend of a friend. But when it does, you can't help but wonder, how could I have been so naive? Of course it could have happened to me. These kinds of things happen to people all the time. And sometimes it's not even a matter of who it's going to happen to, but when.
Every morning, I'd know Riley had gone off to classes by the smell of burnt toast in the kitchen. But that morning, there was none. After I finished vacuuming, I caught the tail end of a cell phone ring somewhere upstairs. A few moments later, it rang again, leading me to Riley's room. I looked inside and found it was hers. I saw that Mackenzie had tried to call three times. Maybe it was Riley using her phone to try to track hers. Before I let it go to voicemail, I picked it up. When I called for the upteenth time, Riley's mom picked up. She said that Riley had left her phone behind. And then she asked if I was with her. I was going to ask the same thing. While we're on the phone, I spotted Riley's backpack still by her bedside. It dawned on me to check the main closet. Her shoes were still there. She could have taken another pair out. She had a new pair every time I saw her. I used to go out without telling my parents, too. Nowadays, if someone doesn't respond to their text right away, we assume the worst. When I would go out and not tell my parents how long I'd be out for, I'd come home and find that they hadn't slept. And I'd tell them, guys, don't worry about me. And they insisted that once I became a parent, I'd know what it's like. Angie wanted to call the police, but I insisted we wait until she show up later that night. She could have gone to a movie and not had reception. I mean, how bad would it look if we started this whole rally and then we find out that she was just over at a friend's place all night playing video games. John was right not to jump to any conclusions at that moment, but nightfall came and there was still no Riley. So I made the call. 911, what's your emergency? I need to file a missing persons report. Okay, and for whom? My daughter, what's her name? Uh, Riley Madison. How old is Riley? 22. When did you last see or hear from her? Last night. Okay. What were the last words exchanged? I love you too. And welcome back. And for the second featured review on this episode is going to be We Are The Missing. This is from this year in 2020. It was written and directed by Andrew J.D. Robinson. It stars Maisa Hori, Mark Templin, and Willow McGregor. This is a drama horror mystery thriller from Canada. This is currently too new to be rated on IMDb, as well as the same thing for Letterboxd. I mean, there's three ratings on Letterboxd, it looks like, with the average being about four stars. But that's about it right now, so I'd probably say it's hovering around that point. And the synopsis would be a drama horror mockumentary following the Madisons' desperate search for their missing daughter. Now, this was a film that writer-director Robinson had sent me a link over the weekend before it came out. I was unable to watch it before it was officially released on YouTube due to prior commitments, but I decided that since this was his feature film debut, and I've watched a ton of his short films, and I've really enjoyed it, I decided that I'd reach out and let him know I'm going to do this as a featured review, as you can tell here on the podcast, because this gives me a 2020 release for this week. Now, as a synopsis states, we have Carter, who is Eleonora... Potolova, who is making a documentary about the disappearance of a young woman named Riley Madison, who is Chantel Little. We get to hear 
Carter's voice throughout as she interviews Riley's parents of Angie, who is Hori, and John, who is Templin, as well as some other people. But we do get to see her on camera as I will go into it, but things get a little bit weirder for her and she actually becomes part of this documentary herself. Now, there's an interesting dynamic here with these parents that I picked up on from the beginning. We do get to end up learning that they are divorced, and this has a ripple effect to their family, but they do come back together for the fact that of everything that has happened with their daughter, they kind of have different thought processes on what's happened to her or possibly what she did, which I did think was kind of a cool thing to play with there. But on top of that, this movie also starts off with a pretty creepy number about how many people go missing every year and how many of them are still missing and then from here the first vibes that i got was that sometimes parents don't really know their children as well as they like to think they do now this isn't something i necessarily learned from this but this does play up that fact a lot now riley is missing and her parents at first try not to panic but as things go on they eventually do which i can't blame them as I can't I don't have children at the moment so I couldn't even imagine if that child disappears what you must be feeling or going through and just how stressful that would be but then the documentary then extends to Mackenzie Porter who is McGregor and she was Riley's best friend as well as her elementary school teacher uh, teacher of Phoebe Taylor who is Catherine Stella Duncan it is here that we learn that when Riley was a little girl she had an imaginary friend named Mikey and Riley's parents were torn on how to deal with this, but the more we learn, the more creepy that this thing becomes as Phoebe tells us a story about how she told Riley that she needed to have her imaginary friend stay outside, and it's a really creepy thing that they claim was wrong with the of Mikey while he's outside, and that Mikey might be much more than just an imaginary friend to Riley. And then this also takes a turn when Angie and John end up going missing themselves. Mackenzie tries to help Carter find out where they went or what happened to them, but when she goes inside their house, she states things that chills her to the bone, as well as, I'm not going to lie, it gave me an uneasy feeling as well. Now this leads Carter to more discoveries, including a bunch of similar people with loved ones that go missing, and we get to see these people as there's a bunch of like YouTube videos of them pleading for help, and... This film does a great job of editing this together where it'll jump from video to video, but we can kind of see that there are eerily similar stories and eerily similar situations for each of these and how they all kind of seem to correlate back to what happened to Riley. Now, that's where I really want to leave my recap as this movie doesn't necessarily need a spoiler section, so I won't do that here on the podcast, but... I, that's just things that I wanted to kind of get you up to speed with where the movie kind of goes. And then I kind of want to give some a little bit more of my analysis from there. Now, what I left off is that this recap is probably about halfway through the movie. As a story guy, I do like how things are presented to us. And I did like that I saw someone say that this movie gave off a Lake Mungo vibe. And I think that is extremely accurate. We have parents that are distraught and said what happened to their daughter. They want answers. It is terrifying, though, that people go missing every day without a trace, and I think that helped me with this feel of the movie that it is, you know, basing it part in realism. Now, I'm not going to spoil Lake Mungo, but to kind of... Their daughter is dead, where this girl is missing, so it's kind of a different vibe, so I think that's a good job that the parents don't necessarily extremely sync up because, you know, it is two different situations, and that movie kind of has a whole different angle that it plays with as well. Now, another reason I'm not going to do a spoiler section is that the movie doesn't over-explain anything, 
and I don't think that anything I would do would be kind of more conjecture. And I will warn you that there are questions that are left unanswered in this movie. But I think that is more in line where you'd get something like cosmic horror. I wouldn't necessarily say that this movie is Lovecraftian, but it is in the same vein as he rarely, or authors in that subgenre also don't, really give you everything. Because to be honest, they don't necessarily know all the answers and can't give you because it's things that we've never seen before or heard about. So I, to be honest, I think that gives it a more scarier vibe that we aren't given everything, but we're given enough that our imagination is allowed to correlate things back together. Now, if there's one thing I want to give credit to Robinson here is going to be the feel of the movie. Because to be honest, it just gives off eerie vibes. And I felt anxious to the point where when I left my recap of this, I got my anxiety going very high and just felt uncomfortable extremely uncomfortable but that's kind of how I like some movies to be for me to make me feel something and to be honest it was dark in the room that I was watching in and I was pretty creeped out now the more that they introduce and you see the anguish of some of these people for missing their loved ones I kind of put myself in their shoes so that also helps there and some of the recordings we hear are chilling to the point where again I felt uncomfortable which I dug I would probably give credit here as well in part to the soundtrack selections as well to help build up that eerie vibe without it being overpowering it's just something that it really kind of plays with how i'm feeling about it but not in a way where you necessarily notice it it just kind of is like an undercurrent to everything that we're seeing now to shift this over to the doc or to the acting of this documentary mockumentary found footage type movie i don't think anyone is great but i'm forgiven of it that though for being this type of movie and it makes it feel more realistic, to be honest. I do wish that Hori as a mother would give us a little bit more emotion than what we got, but I thought she was still solid. Templin was good as the father, and I thought McGregor does really well as the best friend. I don't necessarily feel as much motion as I wanted to from the actress Olivia Piercy, who is Paige, as she gets established as a sister to Riley that wasn't revealed until later on. Now, they do well in explaining this away because she didn't want to be part of this documentary. And she has her own reasons as she's estranged from her family. I should say she's estranged from her parents, not necessarily her sister. But I did also like some of the things that she reveals here as well, though. Now, I did like that we have she plays Amy Bickle here, who is the actress is Rebecca Naomi Alala. And then Olivia Perkins, who is Chantel Grace. They both have some interesting little movies that they have that they were found and then are incorporated back in because it's eerily similar to the things that are going on. And I know Amy is actually a news broadcaster in the D'Arcadia area. And Olivia Perkins just has an eerily similar story to things that happened with Riley. And really the last thing that I wanted to go over for this review would be the editing. There are things that are introduced early and throughout the movie that get brought back up later, which if you do something like that, I'm a sucker for it. I do feel that there were a couple times where we got some filler though, where too much of the videos are shown of those that are missing someone. The editing is great in having them how they have it and how they flow together, as if that is how they're supposed to be seen. So I do give credit there. And like I said, there's a cool scene of Angie and Olivia that is edited together, revealing information that is eerily similar, even though neither person knew each other. I just think that some of these videos tend to go just a little bit long for me and could have been trimmed just a bit. But I kind of feel part of that is for filler to get up to that feature length time. It is what it is, but it doesn't ruin anything, but just something that I felt kind of bogged it down just slightly. Now, with that said, I've been watching a lot of Robinson's shorts, and I have to say, I thought he did a great job with his feature debut. It is an interesting story. 
story that is grounded in reality with subject matter and going mockumentary, but then mixing in a bit of the supernatural. There's a feeling of dread that just builds throughout this movie that I really liked. The acting I thought works for giving that amateur feel and my slight issues are very minor. The soundtrack coupled with this really worked for me in building up that vibe. There are a few scenes that do feel like filler that could be trimmed, but I never got bored. And I would say that I just have a few nitpicks, but nothing that ruins the movie. And so I would say that my rating here for this first viewing of it would be above average. So I definitely came in with a 7.5 out of 10. And then just before I close this out, I just had a few bits of trivia that I wanted to kind of toss in here. And those would be that that most of this $300 budget went to Uber fare, bus tickets, and catering, and they were all out of pocket. The film has an unprecedented community effort involving 110 plus members from the horror indie scene both locally of Ottawa, Canada and internationally. Lake Mungo, Ghostwatch, and Norai the Curse are all cited as inspirations, which I definitely got the Lake Mungo vibe. I haven't seen the other two, but they are on my list of films to check out. The music direction for Akamili's original score was less melody and more state of mind mood soundscapes, while pooling inspirations from Akira, Yamaoka's compositions toward the Silent Hill video games and Kenji Kawa's work on Ringyu, which I'm a big fan of both of these, so I can definitely get that, and that's probably why I enjoyed it. Now, there is a little bit of meta references to other Robinson works with the city of D'Arcadia, which is to do with a loved one being played by Julie Landronaut. And then during Olivia Perkins' uploaded video, her public Lee is included in related search results whose channel is titled Misadventures in House Sitting, a reference to Julie's protagonist role in We Know You Are Home from 2018, which is a pretty interesting short if you haven't seen that, which centers around a scary Halloween night while house sitting a haunted residence. The character of Bickle is a resurgence of a central character from a screenplay that Robinson did called Porcelain while he was still in high school. Riley's imaginary friend Mikey is kind of from the red bicycle which is a 15 second short film that he did where mikey was a malevolent spirit there the ensemble is purposely sprawling in order to replicate the sense of living and a lived-in world and i think that's kind of a cool thing as many films use let's save the world as a MacGuffin just because it's the right thing to do whereas andrew wanted to create a community that the audience could empathize with and see various shades of themselves within which i thought also kind of worked this was originally going to be a screenplay called shadow people but I do like that he switches over to a kind of mockumentary feel. And he also wanted to speak to grief and loss that many people experience, a topic not awfully dived into deeply with many horror films. But that's where I really kind of want to end this off here. I want to thank Andrew for reaching out to me to check this out. But what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to one last musical break before I close out the show. Some lost and distant shore 
I want to thank you all for listening to Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. This has been episode number 33. Now, if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can send me an email at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. That's all one word. Reviews of the Dead, if you want to read any of my written reviews from anything on this episode or any of the past reviews that I've written. 
and that's horrorreview.webnode.com. I'll also have the link in the show notes for that blog. If you want to follow me on Facebook, you can at David Michigan Garrett Jr. On Twitter, you can follow me at Buckeye from Mish. Letterboxd, I'm David OSU. Instagram, I'm David OSU87. If you want to download the Flick Chat app and get in on the conversation over there, that is an app you can download on iOS or Android, and my join code is Journey with a Cinephile. And if I could also ask if you, whatever podcatcher you're listening to this on, if you can go ahead and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And if there's a way to rate and review on there, I would definitely appreciate that just to kind of get a little bit of feedback to what I'm doing to make sure that I'm putting out the best product available to you. Now, and I'm also going to have in the show notes a link to We Are The Missing, and because that's available on YouTube. So I just wanted to make sure that I pointed that out because I don't believe I did in my review of the movie. But what I'm going to go ahead and do is I'm not sure what the two movies are going to be for episode number 34. I'm actually going on vacation as of Thursday of this week as I have a bachelor party that I'm going to attend, but I'm definitely going to get something out there before that'll be dropping on Monday morning. So I'm definitely going to try to rush around to see what I can do before, you know, I go on that trip and everything like that as time is going to be a little bit tight for me this week, but I'm still going to stick to make sure that I don't miss an episode and keep, you know, episode 34 out on time. But as always, I will make sure that I have something out there for you as well. Now, this is David Garrett Jr., though. I'm going to be signing off here in a second. But I just wanted to say that whatever you do today and any of the time that you're listening to this, I hope you have a great time doing that and be safe out there. Once again, David Garrett Jr., your tour guide is signing off.